This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. On today's One for the Road, my very special guest is William Porter. He's an author, speaker, and an all-round good guy, and I'm really looking forward to this one. So, hi, William. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. Um, We already know each other quite well, don't we? We met uh, in the early days of my sobriety. And uh, you were doing a talk in Dalston. And um, I know that I had a talk coming up and it was my first talk uh, since giving up drinking. And I was absolutely petrified. And uh, when I asked you uh, how it was for you, you said, well, you just get up there and get on with it, which now I know you really well. That doesn't surprise me, that answer, because you're really (laughs) quite blunt and and laid back as well. So <laughs> I'm really looking forward to uh, talking to you. So how are you, mate? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, actually, I think, yeah, because I don't particularly like talking in front of people. So lockdown, in that respect, at least, has been a blessing because everything's been on Zoom and online, which is a lot easier than sitting in front of people. I know, but, you know, when, when I went to that event, there were quite a few people there, weren't there? And you know, even going to that event for me was really challenging because normally I'd have pre-drinks and turn up probably half cut. And to walk into a big room of strangers was really challenging for me. But when I left, I felt really inspired. And when you spoke and the Rock Sober Boys, I thought, God, there is a life outside drinking. Yeah, a lot of it's just, it's, it's almost just like a safety thing, isn't it? You kind of, you've spent so long going out and having had a few drinks inside you when you get there, doing it sober is a bit intimidating, but then you do it and it's like, okay, this is fine. I can do this. So can we uh, talk about you and your childhood? Where where did you live when you was a child? I was born, well, born in Hammersmith Hospital, but grew up in Rains Park, which is sort of near Wimbledon. Um, and yeah, grew up, went to school around there, spent all of my life up to my 30s, I think, living in Rains Park. Yeah. I did not know that, mate. I, I know <laughs> Rains Park really well. Do you? I might have walked past you several times. Yeah, because originally I was a Sutton boy, so uh, okay. yeah, yeah. not that far away. No, no. So yeah. So I did, your, did your parents drink when you were growing up? Not massively, no. I think it's a bit of a weird one, really. My mum and dad didn't really drink and they, I mean, they'd have, they weren't like teetotalers, so they weren't anti-drinking, but they just didn't really drink. And I think on special occasions, they'd have a drink or two, but nothing major. Um, But funny enough, I think they kind of got into alcohol later in life about the same time I did. So I was like a teenager when I think they started drinking because I remember like weekends would come and we'd sit in the garden together all drinking away. And it was kind of new for all of us, you know, that kind of that when it's still new for you and it's all very good fun. So basically you enabled your parents. It's normally the other (laughs) way around, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Like because you're a bit younger than me. 
um, when when I was a teenager, you could go into the pub without ID. Um, yeah, that was similar. Well, I think it we weren't supposed to, but it was easy enough to find places where you could drink. Because I remember going out like with a friend of mine. There was a pub called the Outrigger in Kingston, which was a bit of an old dive, and I remember going in there young like 14 15 and ordering a drink and the barman was even at that age I could see he was drunk it was like midday on a Saturday and I remember going into the Rains Park Tavern which is my local pub and I remember going in there um and this is what he did it, we, you go in and we ordered like two pints of lager and he started pulling them and he stopped and looked at me and said are you 18 and I went yeah and he looked at my friend and said are you 18 and my friend went yeah and he went okay and just carried on it was I don't think like it is these days they're quite strict these days aren't they but then you just I think they kind of took a turned a blind eye to it well, you could go into your school uniform and get served yeah you could yeah I remember going to um a tattoo parlor in Garrett Lane and he was a famous tattooist um Barry Levine and um he you would go in later in the day because if you went in first thing, his hands were shaking that much. You didn't have a tattoo, yeah. Because he would he would drink lager with whiskey chasers, and smoke a cigar while tattooing you, oh, you know. Wow. And we were health and safety and all that business was right out the window then. Jesus. Yeah, it was the same for me, and and uh, quite often, you know, we'd have a right group of lads that were still at school sitting at the bar. It's mad mm-hmm. times. So then after that, so um, into your late teens, what was your drinking like then? So, I mean, I was always a binge drinker and I got into like the group of friends I was with in well, school and sixth form. That's what we did. We just drank loads and people were in, into all kinds of different things. But for us, it was going out drinking. But we went out for the sole purpose of getting drunk. And it kind of always seemed a bit of an alien concept to me, just like having one or two. Because it was like, well, hang on, you drink to get drunk, don't you? So when you go out, you buy loads of booze and you drink as much of it as you possibly can and get as drunk as you can. That was the whole point of it. So that went on for quite a few years, really. But I think that's kind of par for the course. Certainly when I was growing up, it was. We'd just go to an off-license or something and buy as much booze as we could and then go up Wimbledon Common on a Friday and Saturday night and sit there and drink it. I don't think we had the education or we didn't want the education, did we? Because I think back then... We weren't aware of the dangers so much, were we? It was just go out and get drunk and it made you yeah. gang. and It kind of, it was almost, it's like it, it was kind of a cross between a part of growing up and kind of naughty but not evil behaviour. It was kind of like, you know, the, like the Beano and the Dandy, they kind of getting up to mischief, but it's kind of lovable mischief. And it was kind of like with drinking and smoking, wasn't it? It was kind of, you weren't supposed to do it, but everyone did and nobody was particularly bothered. And the interesting thing about drinking and smoking is when you first start doing it, it's disgusting, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, alcohol does not taste nice. I mean, you you might be a connoisseur of wine and disagree, but actually I, I only drank for the effect. I didn't drink, you know, I was never, I would go and get a five pound, bottle of wine from the local shop sometimes you could get two for fiver but it was like oh my god this is awful but I don't care because it's 13 percent yeah I think I used to sip my dad's beer occasionally when I was little but the first time I sat down and have had a drink it was special brew (laughs) so it wasn't the most palatable of drinks anyway but to be fair I don't think I was expecting it to taste good I was drinking, even then, I was drinking for effect. I wasn't sitting there thinking, what's this lovely tasting thing? I was thinking, so this is what you this is what you have to do to get drunk. It's crazy. I remember going to a holiday camp down in Bournemouth, uh, and I was 15, and um, they had barley wine oh, behind yeah. the bar. And I think that was stronger than Tenants Extra or... Yeah, it was, wasn't it? It was like percent or something. Yeah, no, it yeah. was. Yeah, it was really, really high. And that, and I had two of those, and I was sick everywhere. And <laughs> you know, it was. Terrible. I did exactly that. I remember going on a school trip when I was at sixth form. I can't remember where it was, but we went to the pub at lunchtime and like had a couple of pints and they had barley wine, and I <laughs> ordered one of those. And then we had to like, you know, when it's like, oh no, we got to go. So I had to like knock it back in one. <laughs> like treacle, wasn't it? 
it came straight back up again. Do they still do yeah. it though? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't been in a pub for years, but also I haven't been in the kind of pub that would serve barley wine for probably decades. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening <clears throat> that have never heard of it, but it was literally like syrup, wasn't it? And you... it was, yeah, it was. It was kind of special brew before there was special brew, wasn't there? Yeah. Just very strong and cheap. Yeah, and you. Yeah, I can't. Oh God, I haven't seen that in a pub for years. But then saying that, I remember seeing special brew. I remember going to um, uh, where's that? Mar- oh, Portobello Road Market, and we were down. I can't remember which end it was, and we went to a pub there, and they had bottles of special brew in the fridge. I think that's the only time I've seen special brew in a pub. But yeah, those kind of pubs seem to not be around. So, much so after that, um, did you? How old were you when you joined the Paris? I was 24, I think. So I joined in t- at 24 because what happened was I joined the reserves. I was a reservist. So I joined, um, I'd been to university and come out um, and I was kind of like just doing menial jobs, waiting for like a career job to come along. And I was just bored basically. So looked for something to do outside of work which ended up being that for various reasons. And did you soon get a reputation once you joined that? I mean, what was the drinking like in the powers? That was pretty much par for the course. Yeah. I got disciplined a couple of times for getting drunk, but it was very, again, it was like, it was just shrugged off. People, they're not bothered. They kind of expect people to go out and get really drunk. And I remember one time we went to Normandy and did a commemorative parachute drop out there with the American forces and obviously went out drinking in the evening and I got put on some kind of punishment duty. But I, to this day, I don't know what it was I did. I can't even remember. I was just on the coach and they were like, right, you, you're on punishment duty. And I was like, okay, didn't know what I'd done there. Another time I think I... We went off camp to have drinks and I got back onto camp and then just collapsed in the middle of nowhere. And so I got hauled over. But again, it was all kind of fairly friendly. And I remember, to be fair, they do it the other way as well, because I remember, so one one Saturday night, we had a march and shoot the next day. So that's £35 and a weapon and you do a 10 miler in one hour 50 and then you've got shooting competition at the end of it. Um, and they were, everyone was going out drinking um, and they were saying, like, are you coming out drinking? I said, no, I'm staying in. I don't want to go out. I've got the 10 miler in the morning. And and my sergeant major had a massive go at me saying, if you can't get basically pissed up and then do a 10 miler, you shouldn't be in the reg. So that was very much the attitude. So they kind of, although you get punished for drunkenness, it wasn't like a massive problem. Tongue in cheek kind of thing. Yeah, it was more like a slap on the wrist and everyone went through it at some point and Oh, did you get drunk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fairly well. Was that the next day then? To just crack on. Oh no, no. Sorry, on that occasion I didn't. No, I I didn't go out. Um but yeah, I mean this is the thing. I think they're discouraging it now because I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago there was a couple of lads on SAS selection who died. And I think that was warm temperatures. So that I mean they're like they're properly cracking down on it now. So again, this is going back 20 odd years. Yeah. 15 years. So I think it is different now. And I spoke to someone the other day, actually, who's still in, and I was telling him about how you're encouraged to drink. And he said, oh, no, it's totally different these days. They're kind of pushing people the other way at the moment. So I think it's kind of following the sober trend generally. Like we were talking about, people are starting to see alcohol very differently and seeing it for what it is as opposed to that kind of funny naughty side of it i mean my son's 27 and to be honest when he was younger he used to do the typical lad thing go out and whatever and i i don't think it's just me stopping drinking that's changed him but i think it's helped because whenever i'd meet him that was the thing we used to do Hmm. he used to work in london and he'd get off at clapham junction say right dad where are you but i'd probably had four already by then and I remember putting him on a train and we were both absolutely out of it. And I thought, that's my son. He was probably 23, 24 there. And I'm putting him on a bloody train. He might fall asleep and end up in Portsmouth or something. Yeah. But it was all a laugh then. Yeah. That's uh, you the know, thing. it's all the yeah. lad banter, isn't it? And it's like, oh, how are you, mate, in the morning? And it's awful, irresponsible when you think about it. But now yeah. he, he rarely, rarely drinks at all now. And I think, you know, 
there's a new generation of people coming through that are a lot more health conscious and self-aware uh, about drinking. And um, certainly for me and probably for you, I'm, I, I welcome it with open arms, you know, because we've been there a bit longer. And, uh, you know, if I could have given up when I was younger, I would have done, but it wasn't my time. You know, I've drank over four decades now and I, I feel less that I have managed to do it at my age. And I'm sure you do. Yeah, I think attitudes are definitely changing. I, th- I see it going the way of smoking. It's becoming less and less acceptable. And as you say, like the m- millennials are drinking less and less and less. They're just not interested in it. But I think that's just a, sort of an understanding. Because years ago, it was kind of like, oh, it's it's just what everyone does. It's fun. It's a way of letting off steam. Don't worry about it. But now we're seeing it very differently. It's a drug. like a lot of other drugs and you know they have apparent benefits and massive downsides alcohol along with all the rest of them well yeah i think if it was invented now it'd be banned wouldn't it yeah i mean people quite often have this weird thing with it saying oh it's like an integral part of human development like it's some like really important part and it's not it's it's just it's a drug and the only reason it's so prevalent is because it's very easy to make. You know, like if you're making methamphetamines, you need to buy all these different chemicals and set up a lab and half the time you blow yourself up anyway. Whereas with alcohol, you just need a, lot, a load of rotten fruit or vegetables stewing. Yeah, basically. Uh, uh, but now, you know, like it's even worse now with things like Deliveroo, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. they deliver it to your doorstep. And when I was drinking, I didn't really have that then. So it was basically if I ran out and the shops were closed, that was it for me. You know? <laughs> so I always used to make sure I'd have enough. But now so many people are saying, you know, that you can have two or three bottles delivered to your door at midnight. Yeah, it seems to be. I mean, this is – I stopped drinking before this kicked in, but that certainly – that's my understanding. In mean, the same way you can get food, you just order – bottles of beer yeah, from petrol stations as well yeah 24 hour i think isn't it most you know, of them um, yeah so where, when did things start to change for you then so i suppose up through university and beyond it was standard drinking in that i'd go out and get hammered but that's what everyone else was doing um with the military so i got sent out to iraq um and i remember specifically at one point um, so it was six months out in Iraq, but there was two months like build-up training beforehand. And, and that was interspersed with some quite big chunks of leave. And I remember at one point going down to see my sister who was in Brighton. And I just used to go down there and bring loads of booze and we'd get just get hammered for the weekend. And I remember she, she was one of those people who when she drinks, she sleeps in, whereas I was always up at the crack of dawn. And I remember waking up really early um, and just sitting in her front room and her and her husband were asleep and they were going to be asleep for hours. And I was feeling like really anxious and nervous about this whole situation. Um, and I remember going to, I was just like pacing up and down and I went to the fridge and opened it and there was Strongbow Super in there from the night before. And I wasn't even really desperate for a drink, but you know, when you just, you're really nervous and you want something. And I drank a can of Strongbow Super and I kind of went from feeling really nervous and worried to feeling like happy and confident and the oh six months will fly by it's going to be a great experience and so from then on I pretty much was drinking as soon as I wake woke up but the thing is out in Iraq at the time it was dry completely there was no booze I wasn't particularly worried that I was drinking really heavily because I thought well I'll go out there and it will be like a six month detox anyway but of course, what I didn't understand at the time was it's a one way street. When you start drinking in the morning, you can stop for periods. When you start drinking again, you just go back to your old habits. So it kind of escalated massively then. To be fair, when I came back, I did pretty much get back on the straight and narrow in that I was sober enough to go to work and all the rest of it. But then a couple of years after that, I got married and then after that I had children. And I think, to be honest, that was the bigger catalyst. <laughs> I'm honest. <laughs> Always say it how it is, mate. Um, so having yeah. the children started it up. Yeah, I think one of the big things for me was because I was a binge drinker, I'd get absolutely hammered on a Friday night, and then Saturday I'd just be sat around in front of the TV eating fast food and just not doing much of anything. It was bearable. But when you've got young children, they're up in the night they're up at six they're running around and you've got to be running around after them so I was drinking heavily on a Friday night and then I was waking up in absolute bits on a Saturday and not being able to sort of sit down 
And that's when those drinks become crucial because you just think, I can't function. <laughs> I cannot yeah. function like this. So you'd have like a beer or two just to sort of feel a bit better and get on with the day. And again, I think that was a, a sort of a big escalator in my drinking because that's when the kind of the all day drinking kind of kicked in a lot more. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because for me, even if I woke up still drunk in the morning, I would never, ever drink. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? We, we're almost complete opposites in our drinking because I never drank ever I mean there were periods where I did drink every day when I came back from Iraq I had two months leave and I was pretty much drinking every well I was drinking every day then but usually my pattern was no matter how much I drank on the weekends I'd then sober up during the week and get some work done completely as in I wouldn't drink at all during the week but when I was drinking on the weekends I'd drink all day or wake up in the night and drink and everything whereas you were the other way weren't you You drank every day but only evenings for most of it yeah evenings in the week but um even if i had a day off in the week i wouldn't drink in the day but weekends were different and it's amazing that when you really analyze it, it you know i've talked to you before about the the habit side of things and i think bec- my odd mindset was always on a Saturday and Sunday well look the lads would normally meet at midday this is when I was in my 40s and I was a solitary drinker Hmm. um so it it, you know I would open a drink a can of or whatever at midday because the football was on or you know I'd always justify it on whatever level it would be but in the week, I wouldn't. Yeah, I would drink every night. So it just goes to show how different everyone is and they've got their own drinking patterns. And it's just so interesting. You know, I, I was talking to someone the other day and he used to hide vodka in a Ribena bottle on, on the way to work on the tube, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's... Jesus, I just, I was never like that. Yeah, no, I remember drinking on the way to work a few times. I, thinking back on it now, it was a bit weird, but I just, I didn't hide it in anything. I, was, I remember just sat on a commuter train from Rain to Park to Waterloo with a can of cider. <laughs> oh sat there in my suit drinking that. Oh, you just cracked me up, honestly, because it, 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 it alcohol doesn't discriminate because you just <laughs> don't look that kind of person. If I was on that train looking at it, it was like, what is this? You know, it's hysterical. And that sums you up as well that you wouldn't hide it. You just get on with it. (laughs) Can a diamond white on the way to work. So how long did that go on for then? Um, Until it caused problems. Those binges were going on and on and getting more and more extreme. Because I think the problem is, it, it starts earlier because, you know, like Friday night becomes Friday lunchtime. You go out for a few beers and then people are going out Thursday night and it's Friday the next day. So it, it elongates that way. But I found the bigger problem was it elongating the other way. Because when you're drinking that much, Monday would come and I'd be an absolute bit. So I'd ring in sick. But the problem is when you're in that state, sat at home with nothing to do, you just start drinking again. So it was kind of spreading out what was far worse, spreading out the other way. And then... I tried, I'd say I tried to quit. I quit a couple of times for like a few weeks or months at a time, but always went back to it. And then the last one, it was kind of a bit weird because usually I'd intend to drink. So I'd be like, you know, I'll drink this on Friday night, blah, blah, blah. I went out for a business lunch on like Tuesday or Wednesday or something, started drinking and just drank through, rang in sick the next day and kept drinking. And it, it ended up being like five days I rang in sick didn't turn up for work and just sat around at home drinking constantly Mm. um at one point my wife moved out with the kids and I sort of woke up in the middle of the night to find I was on my own and no real memory of what had happened um and that was it that was the last time I drank so I kind of crawled out the other side of that mid-afternoon on a Saturday um and that was back in 2000 and 14 I think did she give you an ultimatum or did you just decide enough was enough no she she gave me a fairly clear ultimatum I'll come back but you need to stop drinking and that is it um and 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 she was fairly she to be fair to her you know she put down some fairly clear markers she's like I'm not taking alcohol out the house I like to have a bottle of wine and this is your problem you deal with it and then pretty much cut herself off from the whole recovery because I know this is very different to to you isn't it but so my wife was like I'm not having anything to do with it you stay sober or you get drunk and you stand and fail on your own two feet but if you drink again I'm gone Mm. 
Um, and that was it, really. Sometimes it's a stark reminder of what, what's been going on. I mean, probably after that binge, it was the right time for you because if you'd been drinking for five days on end continuously, you your body was probably had to shut down anyway and you, you could probably dump. That was perfect timing in a way, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was in a fairly bad way, as you can imagine. I think I stopped drinking the sort of Saturday afternoon and I, I didn't sleep a wink that night. I was in absolute bits. Um, I was in a bad way on the Sunday and Monday. I mean, it took me quite a few days to sort of get back to normal. Um, so, yeah, I was in a bit of a state at that point anyway. So when you stopped, what did you do? Did you just go cold turkey or did you go to AA? Or I'd been to AA. I'd done two stints at AA before. No, no, no I hadn't. I'm lying now. Right, I'd done a stint at AA, stopped for a bit and then gone back to it. And then on this occasion, I started going to AA again. Looking back on it now, I don't think it, I didn't go back there thinking it was going to help me. It was more that I had to be seen to be doing something about it. So I went to AA. And, and to be fair, it was, a, I mean, people say mixed things about AA. I, I never quite understood the steps and how they helped, which I kind of struggled with. But what I found really good was meeting and talking to other people. And I was really lucky in that the meeting I was going to in Ealing was a really positive one. It was like a, a celebration of sobriety. Mm. So it was a really good meeting to go to. Um, but I, yeah, so I went for a bit there, um, but I never really got on with AA. And, and also the other thing is it's having like a fairly full-time job and then a young family and just finding the time for AA meetings was a problem. So when you stopped going to the AA, how did you um, support yourself? To be honest, I I just, I kind of quit knowing that I had to quit, that, that this whole thing had gone on long enough. I had a fairly good idea of the workings of alcohol. So I kind of knew, because I think a lot of people get hung up on, most of the time when people start questioning their drinking and think they've got a problem, they don't want to quit. They want to moderate. And actually that's most of the time what people, their friends and family say to them. They don't say you have to quit. They just say, can't you be a bit more sensible when you're drinking? So I'd already got in my mind why that wasn't feasible for all sorts of physiological and chemical reasons. I knew that wasn't going to work. So I kind of had enough confidence in my knowledge that I could quit anyway. Um, so I didn't really do anything other than just quit. Yeah, that's kind of how I did it as well. I, I've got a weird sort of willpower. I did it with smoking years ago. I just got up one day and I thought that's enough now. And I, I've never smoked since. And and the thought of a cigarette now, I think I would vomit. Mm. Uh, and I, I'm a bit like that with alcohol. I just, you know, my wife didn't ever think I would stop. She used to put in these little um, conversations about someone she worked with saying, um, do you know what? He looks really, really great. He hasn't drank for three years. He's lost loads of weight. And I knew what her intention was. And I was, you know, that typical denial of, oh, well, good for him. And, oh, what an amazing man and and whatever, you know, like a sport kid throwing yeah. his tummy <laughs> out the pram. And, um, but, um, yeah, I... I Kind of with me, it was um, when I started my Instagram page and I realized that by telling my story, there were so many more people that could associate with it, you know, and um, that was kind of my way in the beginning. And then I realized that I had to do the work as well. You know, it, it was there were days that were really, really challenging, but you've got to get on with it, haven't you, in a way you've got to be positive and there are so many resources out there now. There are so many tools, you know, and, and your books. I mean, I, I love your books because they're they're science based, fact based, and you don't muck about with what you say. So, have you always been like curious about things like that? Because you you know such a lot. I mean, you can't just write a book like that, can you? Well, no. I mean, to be honest, so I started drinking and smoking at like fourteen, and I. I can't remember how old I was, but I remember being at sixth form college. So I was like 16 or 17 when I came across Alan Carr's easy way to quit smoking. And a lot of people like him. A lot of people don't like him or don't like his, like the way he writes. But I found him fascinating because up until then, smoking was like a, 
a big unknown thing. And if you wanted to quit smoking, it was things like, you know, take a deep breath and breathe out and tell yourself you don't want to smoke anymore and kind of hypnotherapy and all this sort of stuff. And Alan Carr was like a bright bolt of sunlight shined in the world of ignorance because he just grappled with the subject in a way no one else had because he just drilled in and analyzed it and like forget everything you think you know let's look at this thing and see what it's actually doing and not doing um, and I think I just followed along that thought process or sort of way of analyzing things that I learned from him. I mean, I, I really liked Alan Carr and I read loads and loads of his stuff. I think I've read virtually everything he's written several times over. So I kind of, I became fascinated with his approach and I suppose just took the same approach to drinking. It's, it's amazing. And, and you self-published as well, didn't you? Yeah. So I tried to do normal publishing and just didn't get anyone interested and sort of gave up on it in the end. And then I can't remember how, but I found out about Kindle self-publishing and just stuck it on there and it kind of was what you can do with it is give it away for like three or four days or five days or something on a kindle so I did that a couple of times and then slowly it just purely from word of mouth I think people have read it and liked it and recommended it and it just has continued to grow year on year out I know and you've written uh Alcoholics Plan 2 now how's that going that's good as well yeah I mean it's all positive a lot of people prefer that to the first book which I kind of think probably makes sense because the first book was my first <laughs> attempt to write and looking back on it it does look kind of some of the chapters are like a paragraph or two it really is kind of like I had information I put it onto a piece of paper and that was it <laughs> whereas <laughs> I think pasted it <laughs> from think, Alan Carr yeah yeah I think Alan, I think um alcohol explained too there's a bit more of a like a coherent writing style and it sort of reads a bit more like a book so I think you know people who are potentially you know I think it just reads a bit better and it yeah it flows a bit more so I think the feedback's generally better funny enough in the second book than the first one for anyone who's listening that's starting on their journey what um positive dialogue can you give people to like last long term in sobriety because you're like eight nine years uh, is it eight years uh seven years i think because it was february 14 so eight the eight it sounds bad they go on yeah yeah 15 years or something now but yeah so i mean for me i think it's because we we build up alcohol to be so much more than it is and it becomes such an integral part of our lives so we use it to relax to socialize to celebrate to commiserate funerals weddings christmas holidays until we can't imagine doing any of those things without alcohol because like people who are thinking of stopping drinking and then they think hang on what if I go on holiday how am I gonna what what am I supposed to do on holiday for two weeks Um, and it becomes insurmountable but what I would say to people is it it is just a sedative it's just a sedative it just makes you feel slightly dulled now when it wears off it leaves a corresponding feeling of anxiety because your brain tries to counter the effects of the alcohol so when the alcohol wears off you're left with a chemical imbalance that makes you feel out of sorts and unpleasant so when you have another drink you feel good when you drink it and that's really all it is with the dynamic alcohol more than any other drug you've got that ridiculous side of it like with the socializing and the christmas and holidays and all the rest of it but when you separate all that out you're dealing with frankly a fairly pathetic drug Because in terms of how it makes you feel, you know, things like amphetamines and methamphetamines, they create a huge feeling of euphoria. Alcohol doesn't. It just makes you feel slightly dulled. Now, we tend to drink it on occasions like socializing when we're feeling a bit nervous. So when we have a sedative, it takes that feeling of nerves away. But of course, when you're socializing as well, your brain releases endorphins when you're socializing, which is give you a naturally euphoric feeling. So we tend to confuse the feeling alcohol gives us with the euphoria of endorphins and it becomes mixed up together. So we think it creates this wonderful feeling, which actually it doesn't. It's interesting because like where I live, um, they are pedestrianising the high street at weekends. So obviously, because it's outdoors now, um, it's acceptable to drink. And and there's lots of restaurants and bars down where I live and uh you know, I I'm, I could walk down there tomorrow and there'd be bunches of guys drinking lagers and ladies with their wine. And I could quite easily think, oh, God, FOMO. You know, mm. wouldn't I love to be sitting there? But 
why are you sitting there? Is it for the company or for getting pissed? You mm-hmm. know, and as we've discussed before, it's when you wind it forward, the actual fantasy isn't reality. Because if we sat down at midday tomorrow, you and me and we were still drinking, by one half one, we'd probably be half cut anyway, easily. And then what do you do with the rest of the day? For me, I'll be asking you to come on, let's stay, let's ring the wife, you know, mm. come on, we're on it now. Yeah. And then, you know, immediately your wife's got the hump, the children have got the hump. You know, you would feel absolutely horrendous the next day. So there's another day wiped out. So when you look at actually the reality of it is, is enough to, to make you not want to do it anyway, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the important thing there is people often say, like, fast forward it to the next day. But a lot of the time you don't even have to fast forward it to the next day because what you find with alcohol is the first drink or two, it makes you feel good, but mainly because it's anaesthetizing and correcting a chemical balance that it caused previously. Alcohol also ruins your sleep, so you're constantly tired and lethargic. And by anaesthetizing that, you do feel better. But after the first hour or so, you've only got to watch, you know, like, go out sober and with people drinking and watch what happens the mood grows it becomes happier for the first hour or so and then it takes a nosedive so a lot of the time you're right yeah you might sit and chat and have a laugh for the first hour or so which we'd be doing anyway if we weren't drinking but then actually for the latter part of the day that's when you start to get drunk and a bit argumentative and it all starts to go to pieces and that's one of the things I really like doing because funny enough a couple of times I've been asked recently why I keep for example, doing the Facebook group and all the rest of it. And I think apart from anything else, it's useful to help counteract because what drags us back to drinking all the time is, is like a fantasy. Yeah. We have an idea of sat there on the beach with a cold drink and everything being perfect. That's not the reality of it. The reality is feeling tired and grouchy and waking up at night and feeling anxious and all the rest of it. So one of the reasons I do it is because you see posts from, because a lot of groups, they won't let people post when they're drinking, but I think it's a good thing when people post when they're drinking because they're not happy. <laughs> we have this fantasy that like you're drinking, therefore you're going to be having a great time. But most of the time people aren't, they're in a bad mood. They're upset. They're angry. Because yeah. One of the many things alcohol does is it stops you being able to regulate your emotions. It anesthetizes the receptors in your brain that regulate your emotions. So when you start to feel a bit unhappy or a bit angry, that emotion just runs riot. And it's the go-to, isn't it? Because it's so accepted in society. It's the immediate go-to. I mean, you wouldn't say to someone at work, do you know what, I've had a row with him or her indoors and I'm going to have a right old good go on the crack pipe tonight. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? You wouldn't say it. So, But if you yeah. said, you know what, I'm going to have a few drinks, go on, mate, you go and get lashed up. You know, mm. don't worry about it. And, and it's so accepted and it's everywhere isn't it but you know I was thinking about this the other day it's not I used to think it was the first drink that I would think oh my god this is it I've this is you know the start of a lovely evening ahead and um but it wasn't just that it was the thought of it leading up to it as well so you're getting that spike of dopamine an hour or half an hour before because you think do you know what I can have a drink soon Mm. and uh, when you give up You've got to counteract that too. So there's a period which I call the opening hours. Everyone's got different opening hours. And we've talked about that previously where you might drink in the morning and I wouldn't. Uh, My opening hours were probably about five till eight. And it was those times that I had to get through that I was having my cravings and the triggers and stuff. And so I used to go out a lot. I would go to bed early. Um, but it's surprising how quickly the brain can adapt, isn't it? And and if you start, your sleep improves, as we've talked about before, you know, and then you can change your habits. Your friendships change, don't they? Because most of the people that you've aligned with before, you haven't really got that much in common with anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes your relationships can change. You know, quite often... I talk to people and their relationships have been what they call liquid relationships where once one stops or they both stop, they realize they actually haven't got a lot in common. Yeah. So it's a big decision to make, but it's, you know, you've got one life and 
I, I don't know where you feel you would be now um, if you were still drinking. I, I would probably be dead. I'd be... So I've changed... Well, going back to when I was drinking, there were a few things. like I had, I had marital problems anyway, and I think that was very much due to the drinking. I didn't really like my job, didn't like the house, quite a few different things there. I think if I was still drinking, I probably wouldn't be dead um, I probably wouldn't. I've moved job twice since that job, and both of them were kind of stretches for me that I was arming and ahhing. Can I do this? It's a big jump. I don't think I would have had the balls to do it if I'd have been drinking. I just wouldn't have had the self confidence to do it. That's led to like a new and bigger house, which has solved a massive problem. Um, and also, needless to say, the constant battering on the marriage has still have an arguments but at least they're arguments i can remember and they're coherent arguments with a bit of sense behind them other than just drunken bickering yeah so things have improved massively I, I don't know where i'd be if i was still drinking because those binges were getting bigger and bigger and i by their nature they don't get smaller they always increase because your brain becomes more proficient at countering the alcohol yeah. so you need more and more alcohol to get that same effect so whatever level you're drinking at the natural progression is to be constantly drinking more so seven years down the line from what i was drinking previously pr pretty much doesn't bear thinking about and of course your relationship with your children as well because that's such an important conversation isn't it because it's the whole subject of it being normalised around drinking around your children as well. You know, they grow up yeah. thinking that, you know, you drinking a few beers at night after work is what you're meant to do and when they yeah. grow up. And and for people with younger children, it, it's worth thinking about how it affects them growing up as well, isn't it? Yeah, because, I mean, when I quit, I looked at it purely selfishly in that I was finding parenthood a struggle and I knew full well one of the big reasons for that is I was hung over most of the time and not or drinking and either way not particularly interested in charging around after young children. But having stopped, I've got okay, I've slept better, so I'm more rested. My fitness level's gone up, so I've just got more energy, but of course a lot more patience as well. Because when you're not sleeping properly and you're hung over, you're very grouchy. So, from a personal perspective, I've gone from finding parenthood unpleasant and hard work to actually enjoying it because I've got the energy and the patience to charge around after the kids and just enjoy it now the impact on their life must be phenomenal because living with someone who's constantly in a bad mood and tired would be pretty unpleasant but being with someone who's generally fairly happy and bouncing around is a very different experience but also like you say they're growing up with um a male role model who's not drinking so and this is something else that i kind of think as well they're 10 and 8 at the moment give it 10 years they may drink they may not drink i don't know they'll be making their own decisions but at least if they do drink it won't be anything i've done they it won't be because they've seen their dad cracking into the beers all the time mm. so and they were of course both young enough that they just don't remember me drinking now yeah that, that's a major isn't it because uh my step kids they they found um an empty beer bottle in the cabinet in the bathroom and they used to say why is dave always slurring or why does he fall asleep on the sofa but now you know it's two years four months or whatever i haven't had a drink and they they have a conversation around the dinner table whether they're going to drink or not and it's quite an exciting conversation because they're rationalizing the whole thing Oh, right. you know, yeah. They're talking about, well, maybe I'll have a couple, but um, then I'm going to, little do they know, eh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I kind of, I always said to myself, I'll just be honest with them about drinking. So kind of they're at the age now where they see people smoking and they see people drinking. And I've kind of said to them, well, it's a drug. And years ago, people didn't understand how bad they were. So people just took them, but they're addictive. So the more you take them, the more you become hungry for, for them. And it's, they kind of struggled with the concept of addiction, but I said, imagine being really hungry for something. Mm. Um, that's what it's like to be addicted. But it was when you're hungry for food, you're hungry for something that's good for you. Being addicted to a drug is being addicted to a poison. Mm. So it's like, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going <laughs> to mince my words, as you know. So if they're asking for my, about alcohol, I'll give them my view on alcohol, but it's kind of backfired a bit now because <laughs> they'll see like my wife drinking a glass of wine and she's like, Daddy, 
Um, <laughs> mummy, that's a drug. You know, that's an addictive drug. Daddy told me. <laughs> yeah. Why is mummy drinking a glass of petrol, daddy? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so what's next for you, mate? Um, I don't know really at the moment. So I've, I've co-written a smoking book with Annie Grace at the moment. So that's kind of winging its way through the the ether at the moment. I'm not sure quite where that will go. So that's quite exciting. Um, so we're just thinking about that at the moment. And then that's it really. So I can't, yeah, because obviously, as you know, I work anyway. So at the moment, I'm kind of juggling work and kids and bits and pieces well, I do around yeah. the book. So if proof life goes on, doesn't it? There's no magic wand. You've still got the reality and the problems and whatever, but you're doing it about self-medicating. And, you know, when, yeah. when I was drinking, I was a lot more anxious and I, I used to bury things and just, it wasn't living for me uh, and I'm sure no. it isn't for a lot of people. So the point is with it, I think when you're, when you're constantly interfering with the chemical balance of your brain, you're never the best person you can be. And by that, I mean, for me, I, I really notice it in like mental resilience and just having confidence. And like, like I was saying about job changes, it was a new job. It was a big pay rise, something I've never done before, something I could fall flat on my face. And what you really need is just a big chunk of confidence and resilience to just plow on and say, you know what, I'm just going to do it. And that's what was missing when I was drinking or it was missing until I was drinking. I'd always feel slightly things weren't right and everything looked like it was a big problem and you have a few drinks and everything would look okay. What I realized now was that wasn't alcohol giving a benefit when it wears off, it causes an imbalance that makes you feel rubbish and everything looks a problem. And then when you drink, you're relieving that. So although alcohol looks like a friend and is giving you something, actually all it's doing is taking and then partially restoring. Um, and that was the big difference for me, just life does go on but when you're not drinking you've just got the energy and resilience and the confidence to just make the best of it yeah and, and you know like a lot of people say and I know it works for me that with the self-esteem I've got back and you know and, and the positivity in my life because I think I'm naturally quite a misery <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I might not come across like that but I think, no, actually, I'll reframe that into like a realist. I'm quite a realist. So where M, she always looks at the high, bright side of everything, you know, and everything's all right and it's going to work out and whatever. And I'm I'm like the grump that's, well, no, but if you look at it like this way, I can't see how that can work out. You know, I'm always trying to yeah. reason with her and whatever. But I know <laughs> certainly when I was drinking, I, I was literally – almost like bipolar that I was really high or really low you know and now I'm more balanced so um for my own mental well-being that helps me such a lot because I, I kind of go along I mean there there are days that I have bad days but that's life again isn't it it's like that whole thing what I say about it, there's no magic wand I think I've always been real on my social media and you are when I talk to you is that actually it doesn't solve everything, but it really, really does help, doesn't it? It's like mm -hmm. the anxiety levels that I used to have. And I, I used to think about drinking from the second I got up to, this, to the minute I had one in my hand. You mm -hmm. know, in the morning it was negative, or I'm not drinking tonight, I've upset everyone, I don't know why I've texted and whatever. And then lunchtime it's, well, maybe I could have one. And then two o'clock, oh, I could probably just get a bottle. And then I'd end up buying a litre of vodka and starting all again. Mm. And when you think about it now, it's exhausting, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah. It, it eats into so much of your time because you're either drinking or hungover. But like you say, if you're not drinking, you're thinking about it or planning it or and everything starts to center around it. And I think that's the problem, because when you're doing that, your pleasure in life is drinking and that's it. And everything revolves, like whether you're going on holiday, you can't enjoy it without a drink. Whether it's Christmas, you can't enjoy it without a drink. And I think that's that's the big message to get across to people is that that's only because you're clouded in the midst of this addiction. And actually, when you get out the other side of it, of course, there's pleasure on holiday outside of alcohol. You know, you're sitting around relaxing. You've got the sun, the ball, the pool, the beach, whatever, the nice food. There's huge amounts of pleasure there if you're not obsessing about alcohol. Mm. All of these situations are inherently enjoyable. 
something I often say is there's something like 8 billion people on the planet, okay? Half of them don't drink alcohol, either religious reasons or cultural reasons, or it's just not available or, you know, whatever it is. Those people don't just sit at home miserable because they can't drink. They, they go out and enjoy their lives. The only difference here in the West where everyone needs a drink to do it is because they forget how to enjoy themselves without alcohol. It just becomes such an integral part that when you remove it, you think you're removing all the pleasure in life, but of course you're not. No, it's fascinating stuff, mate, and I always love talking to you. You make me laugh. You've got such a dry sense of humour and, you know, you're brilliant, mate. So where can people find you? Um, well, probably the easiest place to start is the um, website, which is alcoholexplained.com. Um, and there's all sorts of bits and pieces on there. The first five chapters of the first book are on there. So if you're interested, you can read those and see if you think it will be interesting or helpful. Um, and then other than that, just the usual places, there's a Facebook group, which is fairly active. Um, and then Instagram, obviously on Instagram, but not not an expert like you on Instagram. <laughs> I'm not an expert, mate. But, um... The, the Facebook group is brilliant, actually. I only joined it another week when I did a live with you, but you, you have to have read the book to um, join that. But I highly recommend people doing that. So people can buy your book on Amazon, right? Yeah, it's on Amazon. The Facebook group, you don't have to have read the book, but what I ask is either you've read the book or you at least go on the website purely because a lot of people come in saying, oh, I feel really anxious. How long will it take yeah. to feel better? And, and all the answers are there on the website. So just yeah, it, yeah. It's a bit frustrating for people who have read the book and are sort of up to speed yeah. on things. So if you don't mind, you don't have to read the book, but if you can at least go on the website and have a read so you kind of understand the basic approach and make sure you're yeah. online with it. Yeah. All right, mate. Well, it's been Thank fascinating. You. Thank you. And you've got your English shirt on, St. George's Day. St. George's Day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So thank you so much for joining me on my first series of One for the Road. And we'll we're, we're catch up soon, mate. Excellent. Take, Take it easy. Cheers, William. Bye. Bye, mate. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you have a moment, then please do leave a review so that more listeners can enjoy the conversation. You can find me on Instagram at SoberDave, or drop me an email at info at davidwilsoncoaching.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great week, and take care. 